Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you to, to return once again to the book of Genesis and to Genesis chapter 1 as we have commenced now an expositional series uh, through Genesis, the book of Genesis. Uh, looking initially, we're going to be looking initially at the first 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11. And this morning we're going to focus on Genesis 1 verses 26 through 31, which is a description of the remainder of what took place on day six of creation. Let me invite you as you're able, let's stand again in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 1, from verse 26 to the end of the chapter in verse 31. Moses faithfully records And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth. And every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. May God bless today once again the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks again for thy word, the word written. We know that holy men of old were driven along by the Holy Spirit to record these things. And you have provided also for thy word. You have preserved it, kept it pure in all ages. And so give us light to see, open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2005, the London Zoo made headlines around the world when for a short time it hired eight persons, three men and five women, to live in an exhibit within the zoo under the title Homo Sapiens. And so people would come and visit the zoo and alongside the other creatures and animals they could see an exhibit where there were people uh, walking about and they could see Homo Sapiens. Other signs describe their diet and typical activities. Another described them as the most dangerous animal of all. So, 
Are human beings simply like all the other animals? If not, what exactly is it that makes us different? More recently, a YouTube channel went to a vegan festival in Los Angeles and gave various people a scenario. Suppose your dog and a stranger were both drowning and you could only save one. You could save your dog or you could save the stranger. Which would you save? And person after person interviewed said that he would save his dog and not a fellow human being. Were these people justified in their answers? Or do they reflect a disordered and unbiblical way of understanding not just their fellow human beings and their dogs, but also themselves? Today, we return to Genesis 1. We're we're in the creation narrative. And the whole account, all of Genesis 1, is under the heading in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the caption, that's the title for the whole thing. And then we're looking in Genesis 1, as there's laid out before us, what we sometimes call the six-day creation. As the Baptist Catechism teaches in question 12, what is the work of creation? And it answers, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. If we look at those six days as they are placed before us here in Genesis 1, we see something like a a pattern. In the first three days, God makes, we could say, the, the habitats for this world in which we live. He makes the firmament. He makes the seas. He makes the dry land. On day one, uh, God makes light. On day two, he makes the firmament and the seas. And on day three, he makes the dry land and he fills it with plants and with vegetation. And then on days four through six, God fills the habitats of firmament, sea, and land. On day four, he makes the sun, the moon, and the stars to provide light by day and night. On day five, he makes all the sea creatures and the fowl to fill the firmament and to fill the seas. And we saw last time in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 1, That at the beginning of day six, he made all of what we would call the land creatures. Three types are mentioned in particular in verse 24. And that is, after it says generally that he he gave a command, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. The three types are the cattle. We said behind that is the Hebrew word uh, that's the root for our word behemoth. And it refers to a four-footed animal. Most think it's a reference to what we now think of as domesticated animals. So they brought forth the cattle. Then the creeping things. That's the second category. All the small animals creeping upon the earth. 
think I said from the titmouse to the caterpillar, all the creeping things. And then finally, it mentions in verse 24, the beast of the earth. And some take this to be a reference to the type of animals we now would, we would now identify as wild animals, the tiger, the lion, etc. And so at the beginning of the sixth day, God makes these various creatures. Well, today, we're going to continue. We started day six, verses 24 and 25, and we're going to continue now the description, the inspired description here of what else was created on day six. And on day six, as we see here in the text before us, God was pleased to create mankind. I'm using mankind in an inclusive way, men and women. God was pleased to create human beings, mankind. Some have called this the crowning work of creation. The making of human beings. What makes this final part of God's creation his crowning work? What makes it so special in his sight? Well, it's because human beings have a special place in this world that God has made. As David will later write in Psalm 8:4, asking of the Lord, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Would have been nice if they had put that in the zoo, wouldn't it? Psalm 8:4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Well, that's our question today. That's what we want to meditate upon. Why has God made us? Who are we before him? What role do we have in this world? Well, let's turn and let's look at our passage. We're going to walk through it together. And I want to ask you to, to consider today four, at least four key points that are made in this passage. First of all, in verses 26 and 27, we have a description of the special creation of man. And again, I'm using man inclusively. Mankind, men and women. Secondly, in verse 28, we have a blessing and commissioning of man. Thirdly, then, in verses 29 and 30, we have a description of God's provision of meat or food, we might say, for his creatures. And then, fourthly, finally, in verse 31, We have God's climactic declaration of the creation's goodness. And so let's walk back and let's see if we can go through these four points uh, within our text. And let's begin with a meditation on verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, which describes the special creation of man. This passage begins with yet another demonstration of of what we've called the fiat power of God's word. Notice it begins, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. But it begins with that fiat power of God's word. And God said. We've seen this earlier in the account. In fact, this is the tenth time we've we've seen this. Um, well, it's, I think it's the ninth time. There'll be a tenth time in verse 29. But if you look at verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, here in verse 26 and then in verse 29, ten times 
It says, and God said. The work of creation is indeed, as it says in our Baptist catechism, by the, by the word of his power. God is a sovereign king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And like a king, he issues decrees. And what he says is done. One of the most obvious deductions we must make here, if this narrative is true, and we believe it is true, by virtue of this opening declaration here, is that man, human beings, were not made through an evolutionary process. Man did not begin as a lower life form and develop over millions of years into a higher life form. He was made by the power of God as the crowning event of the sixth day of creation. So God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The phrase, let us, let us, is one God, right? Why does he say, let us? The scholars, the grammarians call this a plural of exhortation or a plural of deliberation. And we noticed already this phenomenon that we've come across in Genesis 1, that God uh, speaks of himself with respect to the three persons of the Godhead. Already we saw in Genesis uh, 1 and verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so the work of creation is a work of the one God in three persons. It's a work of the triune God. And the three persons of the Godhead are the same in essence, equal in power and glory, as our catechism also teaches. And we see that within the scriptures, sometimes God, the one God, speaks with plurality. Let us do this as the one God in three persons. And so he says, let us make man. The Hebrew word for man, you didn't know you knew so much Hebrew, did you? Behemoth means cattle. Um, and Adam, Adam. The name Adam is the Hebrew word for man. The name of the first man is man. God made man. God made Adam. He is a special creature made in a special manner and given a special name. Notice he is not listed alongside the other land creatures in verse 24, the cattle, the creeping things, and the beasts of the earth. He is set apart. He is unique. His creation is distinct. And the primary evidence of his uniqueness is found in what is said next in this opening to verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, the plurals, the divine triune plurals. After, uh, in our image, after our likeness. By the way, those two statements are saying essentially the same thing. And again, one of the classics of Hebrew writing, both in narrative and in poetry, is parallelism and repetition. So when it says that man is 
made in God's image, in God's likeness, essentially saying the same thing in simply two different ways, repeating it, expanding upon it uh, a bit. We are perhaps most familiar with that first expression, let us make man in our image. And we perhaps, if we know a little bit of Latin, we've already gone over ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Another one of our little Latin phrases that might be in our word bank is imago dei. We are made in the image of God. This means that that man has an imprint upon him that makes him different than the rest of the creation. And notice it covers both his body and his spirit. No distinction is made here between man's body and his spirit. He is made in the image of God. Our soul, our spirits are stamped with the image of God, as are our bodies. Man bears the imago dei, the image of God. He is not God. Must maintain the the creator-creature distinction. He is not God, but he is made after the likeness of the thrice holy God. What does that mean exactly? Theologians, pastors have struggled with that over the years. Some have come up with very fanciful explanations for what it means to have the image of God. But I think maybe the key is given to us to at least partial understanding, given our own human limitations, in the remainder of what is said in verse 26, which anticipates the fuller commission we're going to look at that's spelled out in verse 28. So this is what it says in verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. There is something about the image of God that enables man to have this duty of having dominion. God, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the master of the whole cosmos or universe, gives to the crown of his creation, to humanity, a measure of limited sovereignty. He gives them to be his stewards and to rule over and to provide for all the other creatures of the firmament, the sea, and the land, and even over all the earth. This is also what David stresses in Psalm 8, when he writes, beginning in verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, Thou hast put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, verse 7. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field. Verse 8. The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. So part of that imago dei is this dominion responsibility that God has given to the crowning achievement of his creation. In verse 27 then, we have a description of the fulfillment of the verbal decree that has gone out from God. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. The scholars point out that literarily this statement is made in what is called a chiasm. And all the grammar and literary nerds out there will get real excited about chiasms. A chiasm is basically just an inverse pattern in the way of saying something. So if you study literature, a chiasm is you've got, you've got statement A, and you've got statement B, and then you've got statement B prime and statement A prime. A, B, B prime, A prime. That's a chiasm. And so, so what do we read here? A, God created man... B, in his own image. B prime, in the image of God. A prime, he created him. And what's the meaning of all that literary pattern? It's to stress the fact that man is special. Three times, three times, there is repeated in verses 26 and 27, the fact that God, that, that God has made man in his image. There is one more bit of information provided for us, revealed to us in the second half of verse 27. Man is made in the image of God. And then it says at the end of verse 27, male and female created he them. And what we find out here is something that's, of course, very important. There's going to be a much more detailed description of this in Genesis 2. Eventually we'll get to this. Hopefully, God willing, we'll begin next Lord's Day looking at a further, more detailed description of this. In Genesis 1, we have the initial, more general framework, and we're going to get more detail about the creation of man as male and female in Genesis 2. But what we learn here is something that's profound, and that is that human beings are made in two basic types, two prototypes, two styles, two flavors, two kinds. God made mankind to be male and female, men and women. Human beings are, according to the good design of God, binary from creation. This is why we as Christians say that there are only two genders in a world that has lost all touch with reality. How long have we been accused of denying science? And yet we have people who are denying a basic reality that's been accepted for thousands of years. God made mankind Male and female. What does it say about the state of our world today that for us clearly to declare and affirm this basic reality of our created existence somehow would risk controversy with the world? We need also to point out that this was and is the original good design made by God before man's fall into sin. This is Genesis 1. Fall doesn't happen to Genesis 3. This is a good design that God has made. 
This is the way we were made to be. It is the way human beings function best. It is the way we were made for flourishing in this world. We might also add that this statement affirms the spiritual equality of men and women. The spiritual equality of men. Another thing people will tell you is, oh, you believe the Bible, you're one of those Christians, you're, you're against women. You have a low view of women. So silly, isn't it? Because the Bible in the very first chapter affirms the spiritual equality of men and women. We are both made in the image of God. We are both image bearers. We are both made in God's likeness. We are both made to have dominion over all creatures and over all the earth. We were both made to be sovereigns, kings and queens under the king of the universe. Men are not spiritually superior to women. And women are not spiritually superior to men. God made us in his image and he made us male and female. How different the biblical view is, let's say, than the ancient Greeks. Some people say, we, we, wish, we should just go back to paganism. Neo-paganism is popular these days. Go back and read Aristotle about women. He said women were poorly formed, malformed men. They should have, let, if they had just stayed in the oven long enough, uh, they would have developed into men. But they're just kind of born early, and so they bore, they're born undeveloped. Because if, you, if you're going to be fully developed, you'd be a man, of course. How different is the biblical view? Men and women, both made in the image of God, spiritual equals. Now, that's not to say, however, that we are the same. We are not the same. We are fundamentally different. We were made by an all-good and all-wise God for different tasks in life, for different roles, for different functions in this world. We are not interchangeable parts. We're not the same. And this is good. We are spiritually equal. And yet we are unique, different, distinct. That's why Solomon can say it is a good thing for a man to find a wife, to find a woman. And of course, Solomon, I'm sure, would agree that it would be a good thing for a woman to find a good man. There's something that's wonderful about that connection. Well, let's look at the second part of our text. This is verse 28. We've got the special creation of man, humanity, in two types in verses 26 and 27. Then in verse 28, we have a description of the blessing and the commissioning of mankind. Having made mankind, Moses tells us that the Lord then did two related things. First of all, God gave man a blessing. And then secondly, God gave man a commission. Both of these are related to the earlier beatitude that we read in verse 22. When God made the creatures of the sea and of the firmament, it says in verse 22, and God blessed them. That's the first beatitude. First description of God blessing someone or something in the scriptures. And now we have a parallel 
blessing that is given to mankind, as verse 28 begins, and God bless them. A blessing by God is the bestowal of divine approval and commendation. What child, for example, does not love to have the approval or the blessing of a loving and wise and good parent? And all of us who are parents know that some of our most effective ways to discipline our children is to uh, give them our blessing and say, Oh, I'm so happy you're doing what I ask you to do. That pleases me so much when you do what I ask you to do. Instead of telling them all the wrong things, sometimes we do have to discipline with the rod, within measure, without abuse. But but how good it is to, to, to give praise and to give blessing and have them respond to that kind of encouragement. What child doesn't want to hear a loving, good, wise parent say, "You, I bless you. I, I'm pleased with you. Well, what human being, unless he's severely disordered, would not want to hear God the Father bless him? And so here, again, this is before the fall, so this is before man became disordered. The first thing that God does is give a beatitude unto man. Then secondly, God also gives to mankind a special commission that is related to his purpose of dominion that was described in verse 26. And this begins as we look at verse 28 after the blessing. It says, And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Again, it's interesting to compare this with the blessing that was given in verse 22 to the sea creatures and the fowl. And if you look at that in verse 22, and you look to those creatures, and you look at the blessing that is given to human beings in verse 28, you will notice two major differences. The first major difference, when God commissions the creatures, the, the, the sea creatures and the fowl of the air, he simply declares this. He simply states it. So if you look at verse 22, and God blessed them, saying... Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. He simply says it. But in the commission that is given to mankind, notice that God addresses this to them. And God blessed them and God said unto them. It's that little prepositional phrase that's different. God speaks to them. He doesn't utter the the blessing about them. That's what he did with the fish and the fowl. But to them. One commentator notes the significance of this. He says, this demonstrates a close and personal relationship between God and man through the processes of thought and communication. It shows the uniqueness of man before the creator. God speaks 
to men when he gives them this commissioning. Secondly, second difference between verse 22, the commission given to the, the sea creatures and the fowl, and the commission given to man in verse 28, uh, relates to the, the, the commands that are given. First of all, the sea creatures are given three commands. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters. And with the fowl, it just mentions a command to them to multiply. But mankind is given five commands. The first three of these are the same as those given to the creatures. They are to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, not merely the waters. But the last two things that they are commanded are unique and distinctive to them, speaking to their unique and distinct nature as image bearers. Let's think a little bit more about the first three commands. They are to be fruitful, they are to multiply, they are to fill the earth. The sovereign Lord gave to human beings the same generative capacity that he gave to the plants and the animals. Remember we talked about this last time. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't uh, cause with the plants and the animals for there to be a, a special creation every time these animals are made, but he gives to them a generative capacity. Plants produce seed, fruit trees produce fr fruit trees, each creature, type of creature, produces according to its kind. And God gives this same generative capacity to human beings. And more than that, God has uh, provided for them. He's given them this, this land. He's given them plants and animals. He's given us a vast living space. And God is saying it is a part of our natural and good purposes as human beings to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Just read Psalm 127 and Psalm 128 in the Psalter to hear about the blessings of children, even in a fallen world. Psalm 127, verses 3 and following. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Or Psalm 128, beginning in verse 3, that says, Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round thy table. I love that image. You're sitting around the supper table and the kids just pop up like little olive plants around the table. Psalm 128, verse 4. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy, thy life. And then Psalm 128, verse 6, talks about the blessing of grandchildren. Some of you have enjoyed that in this room, have you not? Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. Do you see how what is being described here is another countercultural message? Because if you haven't noticed recently, we're being bombarded with ads, promotions, celebrity testimonials, and organizations that try to put fear and anxiety in a man's heart about things like the supposed overpopulation of the earth, 
or reduced resources. And all these things are meant to try to seduce men and women, women especially, into thinking that having children is a burden which only weighs you down and holds you back in life. It's a lie. We were made to flourish in this way. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. Mankind is given in addition, not only those first three commands, but two further ones. That is, they are to, they are to subdue the earth. And they are to rule over it, to have dominion over it. We sometimes call this part of the commandment the, that's given to man, man, this commission, we sometimes call it the dominion mandate. Man is made to rule over the other creatures. He is made to do so not to exploit them or to harm them, but to nurture them and to be good stewards of them for his Lord. I mentioned last Lord's Day, Proverbs 12.10, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. It is only a very disordered and sinful man who is unkind to animals and who treats them poorly. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the film about William Wilberforce, who was the evangelical Christian man in England who was basically the force who ended the practice of slavery uh, in the English-speaking world in Britain and the slave trade. But uh, a lot of people are less aware of the fact that he also was one of the founders of of the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. There's a beautiful scene in that movie, Amazing Grace, where he sees a man uh, mercilessly beating a horse by the side of the road, and he stops, and he intervenes. See, it's, it's only disorderliness It's sin in human nature that makes us treat persons poorly and makes us treat any creature poorly. We were made to be stewards, to have dominion, to have responsibility upon the earth. And uh, because of sin, because of the fall, we, we, we come short of that. But we were made, our way to flourish is to be good stewards of our lives and of the world in which God has placed us. Many interpreters have seen this dominion mandate not only as a commissioning of mankind's stewardship over his fellow creatures, but also as a general call for mankind to seek excellence and godly orderliness in every field of human endeavor. This is sometimes called the cultural mandate. This means we were made to pursue godly excellence in every endeavor to which we set ourselves, whether government or education or music or art or artisanship or cultivation or farming or management or family life and everything else. This was the good original design of God for us. Third of these four points verses 29 and 30. God's provision of meat or food for his creatures. One might say that there is immediately joined here to the doctrine of creation its companion doctrine and that's the doctrine of providence. 
Because here in verses 29 and 30, not only does Moses stress the fact that God made this world and made, made the creatures and made man as the crowning uh, uh, work of creation, but also then that God provided, had made provision of meat, as it says in the authorized version, or food, both for mankind in verse 29 and for the other creatures in verse 30. There are also some interesting historical ethical and scientific questions that are raised here and I have a feeling we could probably have some discussions over this over lunch today we'll see let's start off first of all with verse 29 which describes the provisions that God makes for mankind and so we notice first of all that the Lord continues to speak to the men not about them but to them whom he has created and look at what he says in verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat or for food. And you may remember that back on the third day, if you look back at verses 11 and 12, once God had created the dry land, he made provision for the grass, the herb, and the the fruit tree. And so he was making preparations then for the provisions that would be made for the sustaining of men. This raises an interesting historical ethical question. Were human beings originally intended to eat only plants, to be vegetarians. Some would suggest, perhaps, that there was no meat because there was no death in the animal world before the fall. Romans 6.23 remarks that the wages of sin is death, but he's talking about human beings. One commentator shared this explanation. He wrote, quote, the granting of food to mankind is stated in a positive manner. There is no direct prohibition proclaiming that uh, what they may not eat. Thus, there is no formal declaration saying that mankind should not eat meat. However, this may be inferred from the text. Humans are granted meat-eating rights only after the fall in Genesis 9.3. And so if you look at Genesis 9, after the flood, God says to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9.3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. In other words, God gave to mankind after the flood explicitly the right to eat meat and it really doesn't address what happened before the fall based on this teaching however we would say that the eating of meat is certainly lawful for mankind as long as animals are treated humanely again Proverbs 12.10 but we would also say that it would be lawful for a Christian to say, I think I should be a vegetarian for health or even for spiritual reasons. Paul knew some early Christians in places like Corinth who ate only vegetables because they did not want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. 
You can see Romans 14, verses 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Such are matters of Christian liberty. To be a Christian doesn't require you to be a meat eater. I'm so glad we can do that, personally. Especially glad we can eat bacon. But you're also at liberty to be a vegetarian. That's, that, that's an area in which we have Christian liberty. But we see here, the key point is that God made a provision. He not only created man, but he made provision to, to, to provide from the creation sustenance for man. Secondly, though, in verse 30, we see there's a provision that's made for the other creatures. And it seems, as we read this, that there's a provision made in the pre-fallen world for these creatures that seems to indicate that they were all uh, herbivores, that they, were, that they were eaters of plants. And so look at verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. Their provision was every green herb for meat or food. This raises another historical scientific question. Were all creatures before the fall herbivores and not carnivores? The answer to that seems to be yes. So it was only after the fall that we see the nature red in tooth and claw to which we are accustomed in the post-Genesis 3 world in which we live. Fourth part of our passage is in verse 31. God's climactic declaration of creation's goodness. And so we look at verse 31. It says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the seventh and final such declaration in Genesis 1. This declaration having been made in verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25. And this is a mega declaration because this is the only one where it says when God looks at everything, he saw not just that it was good, but it was very good. God places a divine stamp of approval of goodness upon this pre-fall creation. And we can surmise from what we read in the rest of Scripture that this goodness of the creation, though it has been tarnished by sin, it has not been obliterated by sin. The world is still good. Even though, as Paul said in Romans 8, 22 and 23, it groans and travails in pain awaiting its redemption. This makes, as I've noted before, the Christian faith different from those dualistic ones that see the physical world as only irredeemably sinful. Eastern religions, for example, see the world, the physical part of this world, their own bodies, as being repulsive and evil, and they think they have to overcome those things. The Christian sees things very differently. We see the world has fallen, but it's still good, and it will be redeemed in the end by God himself. Just as we will receive resurrection bodies, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And this makes such a difference. It makes a difference, I, I said before, this is why science and technology gets invented in the Western world that's influenced by Christianity. 
because we see the world is good, we see our task is to have dominion over it. And this, it, it makes all the difference in the world for every society that's touched by the gospel, that's touched by the Bible, the biblical worldview. And with that, we have the close of the sixth day. And, there was e- and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Well, friends, we've looked at our, our text. I, I hope that with the Holy Spirit's help, there's already been connections made, applications made uh, in your mind and heart. Let me, let me see if I could just focus on a couple of applications that I might reinforce. Three things and then an extra thing. First thing, we learn from this passage that human beings are a special part of creation. We are made in the image of God. We are not like the other creatures. That's why we shouldn't be in a zoo. We're not merely animals. And this is why if you've got a chance to save your dog or a human being, you let your dog drown and you save the human being. It's a no-brainer for a Christian. We have a special place in creation and, and all of our fellow human beings have a special place in creation as well. This will lead us not to want to abort babies. It will lead us not to want to euthanize our elderly. And we see a special, a special creation that God has made, the crowning work of his creation. And we also see here that God has given us a special responsibility. It is to have an intelligent, wise, and benevolent dominion over our fellow creatures and even over the whole earth. This ought to bring us to have respect for ourselves and also respect for our fellow human beings, remembering that Christ taught us we are to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. The image of God was tarnished by the fall, but it hasn't been removed. This is made plain by at least three scriptures we can look at that appear after Genesis 3. In Genesis 9, 6, God told Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And the indication there is that that even after Genesis 3, man is still made in the image of God. And so to take a man's life. Is to, is to strike against God himself. Also, passage we've, we've read a couple times, Psalm 8, verse 5. David says, we were made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. And that's been tarnished, but it's not been obliterated. It's not been removed. Finally, James 3, 9. James condemned those who used the same tongue to bless God the Father and then who use that tongue to curse men, which, he says, are made after the similitude of God. That's post-Genesis 3. Don't use your tongue to deride, slander, maliciously speak about a fellow human being because that person has been made after the similitude of God. The image is still there. Second application. God made man in two fundamental types, male and female. Can you believe that's controversial today? There are only two genders, male and female. Christ himself affirmed this in Matthew 19, 
verse 4, when he quoted Genesis 1.27, when he was asked by the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, he said, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? We are spiritually equal, though we are not the same. In today's world, we need to make a clear and firm stand on this basic truth. We need to say to a confused world, be content with the way God has made you and with the way he has made the world in which we live. Don't try to fight against it. Don't try to change it. But embrace it to God's glory and to your own good. That's the strongest thing we can do is just Say we believe in creation the way it's there in Genesis 1.27. We don't really have to spend our time going out there with, with signs, picketing at funerals and, and calling people who have different views by malicious names that would go against James 3.9. Let's just stand for what's good and right. Let's simply stand for what's good and right and make that our standard. Thirdly, God has blessed us and given us a commission. We are to be fruitful. We are to multiply. We are to fill the earth and we are to subdue it. And we are to have to exercise dominion over it. Let me speak to the young people, children, youth, young people who are here. Let me just say that in light of this commissioning, don't be afraid to get married. Don't be afraid to have children. Don't be afraid to pursue mastery of some of the basic tasks in this life and to do them with excellence to the pleasure and glory of God. The world has fallen, but it's still good. It's very good. Enjoy it to the glory of God. That's the three points. Here's the add-on. One last thing. Don't forget that the God who made mankind in the fullness of time would become a man himself for our sakes. As the Apostle John puts it in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten son full of grace and truth. He is the perfect man. Whereas we always will walk a crooked line, he walks a straight path. And if our lives are hid in his, then his righteousness becomes ours. If we have the image of Christ, we will have the image of God restored in us in due time. So Paul in Colossians 3.10 said to believers or described believers as follows. He says they have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Put on the Imago Christi. And God will restore the Imago Dei. Amen? Let me let you stand together.
Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word. We give thee thanks for this revelation of truth, of who we are, who you are, why you have made us, what our end and purpose is. And so help us look unto this and help us to uh, be able to put aside the, 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 the cacophony of what the world says and listen to thy word. Bless thy people. Help us to flourish. Help us to serve thee and glorify thee. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.